oh man, what a good show today. You're going to love every minute of it, especially the bonus show where Sabina comes in. Please enjoy the show. This is great. Just a quick reminder, of course, if you can, if you're interested and you're able, you can support us on Patreon. The link can be found on the website. Uh, we would really, really appreciate your support. It will help us grow. Other than that, please enjoy the show. Listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Also on rabble.ca as well, who's been uh, very kind in posting our episodes as, as well, our podcast audience and our growing radio audience, which uh, Steph and I actually spent uh, about four hours this week calling community stations all over the country, being like, Would you like free programming? <laughs> so hopefully we'll have some new partners. It wasn't, uh, soon. Do you play our show? Uh, no, I checked their website before I called them this ah, time. Excellent. <laughs> so welcome to the Green Majority here. We're, we're live in Toronto where, uh, uh, where we're broadcasting from at uh, the U of T campus here on CIUT. Uh, we have um, – well, I, I had an interview uh, planned. Unfortunately, it, it, uh, it had to be postponed, but I'm really excited about it. I, kinda, I might tease it later. Let's skip that for now. But, uh, but uh, that being said, what we're basically doing is all news all day today. I will um, specifically uh, tease one specific piece of content, which was uh, – I'm sure many people heard about, but for those that didn't, uh, Rick Mercer posted a one of Rick's rants, of course, Canadian, celebrated Canadian, and, and in many ways and most of the time, like 98% of the time, celebrated uh, progressive Canadian. Uh, and I think he thinks he was being progressive this time too, but uh, but many many people do not agree. So we're going to get into uh, Rick Mercer's latest rant here on uh, on Energy East uh, and some of the feedback, and, and we're going to get into some of our reasons why why we think that uh, Rick Mercer might have uh, swung in a miss on this one mm-hmm. uh, in a little bit. But first thing, because we have no interview, we have extra time to discuss some news, and I also have uh, Brenna and Emma as well in the studio with us right now. Uh, And we're going to be talking about principles in a little bit. But, uh, Emmy, can you please expand? Yeah, so it's been uh, quite the week in terms of climate change-related discussion. There's sort of a firestorm of discussion that started last week around the pipelines issues. And it kind of culminated in an announcement on Wednesday by Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr and Environment Minister Catherine McKenna when they announced that the government is launching an interim review process that will actually impose more steps on projects such as Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline and Trans Canada Trans-Canada's Energy East pipeline before they can actually be built. So in a nutshell, process-wise, the ministry will analyze greenhouse gas emissions that would result from approving pipeline projects, and the results of that study will be presented to Cabinet, and Cabinet will then be in a position to make a final decision to approve a project. This is quite a dramatic departure from the the kind of process that the previous government had in place with, with the controversial National Energy Board. So this has obviously sparked a huge discussion, a national discussion, uh, if you want to call it that. That's more of a civilized way of characterizing it, I would say. And what we're going to do today to to start off the show is actually talk about the five principles that the government has established as part of the interim process. Yeah, and uh, just the first one, uh, just to tease it, I think to some extent uh, sort of shoots the whole thing in the foot, at least when it comes to some of the more major pipelines. Uh, given that the first one is no project proponent will be asked to return to the starting line, 
which means that anything going on right now gets to continue, which includes, you know, arguably the major pipelines uh, with Energy East and, 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 and Northern Gateway, uh, as well as, you know, all the other sort of smaller things that exist and Line 9's already through. So uh, as great as the next four are, how do you sort of come bounce back from that first one? So the, there was a there was a there was a slight uh, add on that, and I don't I don't know if it was a, a backing up of position uh, or if this was just sort of details that had to be clarified. But uh, they also uh, did at at one point clarify that they didn't mean that also doesn't mean entirely hands off. That just means that there's going to be sort of like a special process for them. Um, so I, I think it's not I, – I don't think it would be fair at this point to say that, oh, they've been given a complete pass. It's mm. kind of one of those you know positions that we're frequently in, which is we have to wait and see what they mean by that. Right. And it's funny, um, some people might not agree with this, but a lot of a lot of the discussion around that particular provision was about fairness to these pipeline companies. So it's not fair just because an, a new interim process has been introduced that they should have to go back and do all this groundwork that they've already done is the implication. Now, I think that there are considerable parties that disagree with this uh, point. I don't know what you think on that, Brenna. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I was reading a Globe and Mail article about uh, the issue, and Tim McMillan, the president of the Canadian Association of uh, Petroleum Producers, CAP, said um, some companies will be unhappy unhappy with the extended deadline. So Energy East got eight more months, I believe, and Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain got four more months of review. And he said, but he said some will welcome clarity of the new process. Having the people of Canada understand more fully the robustness of the regulatory system is what is uh, it is this is intended to do, and that it'll provide more public support and confidence. So if you get the president of CAP saying that this is going to be reveal what a robust uh, regulatory system this is, I don't think that's a very good sign for, um, you know, what what we actually have on our hands, which is some really Band-Aid reforms. And I would also note, I, as I was waking up this morning, came in on my Twitter that last night uh, National Observer posted a piece about um, the chiefs from B.C., Manitoba, and Quebec rejecting the Liberal pipeline reforms. Um, and Grand Chief Philip Stewart noted that they hadn't even been consulted on the five new principles. So <laughs> what does that say about um, what we're dealing with? So I think that begs the question of when you're in you, when you're about to reform an institution that's been heavily flawed and a process that has been criticized as heavily flawed, how far back to the drawing board should you actually go? So that's a nice segue, I think, to the second principle, which is decisions will be based on science. Imagine that <laughs> traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples and other relevant evidence. Now, this is a pretty big departure from the way business has been conducted under the previous government. Yeah. I, so two quick things on that. One, one is that, um, you know, when I hear things like policy now, you know, when a politician say something like, you know, policy from now on will be based on science. That's like when I go into a restaurant and you're like, oh, we have a new menu from now on. Our menu is going to be based on food. You're like, what the <laughs> How were you doing before? Uh, that's just uh, you know half joke, but so I'm sort I'm sort of serious about that. Um, and the other thing was you know we've been I was criticized recently on on, on Twitter, which which really hurt my feelings, and, mm. and I was accused of being some sort of Marxist, Leninist, communist, fascist, mm. you know, all sorts of contradictory things, which is fine. But you know it made me cry a little. So in the defense of the internet, because internet comments really get to me, <laughs> Stephen, uh, by random anonymous people. Yes, that's, that's uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment. And you guys see what you think of this. So one of the things that we were talking about for years with uh, with policy was that even business. We were talking about this for years. Even business was demanding uh, some form of climate policy because uh, a big nature of the thing for business is predictability, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it, I think it would be a, a fair argument, you guys tell me what you think, to say that uh, on that same argument, if you're going to be, let's be consistent and say that it would be too disruptive to the process, okay, it's bad, and, and that maybe the argument would be 
that that we have to we can't if we start jerking around with you know changing all the rules and everything mid process that this does create instability and discon and unconfidence in the Canadian business sector. And that maybe this will stifle investment and, and hurt Canadians' economy even more than just not going ahead with these pipeline projects. Uh, and that, you know, maybe we could make it up somewhere else, but that, but that this, you know, in a, in a totalitarian – that wrong word in – in a holistic sense – I went there demagogue for a minute – in a holistic sense that this might actually be, be the better solution. What do you guys think of that? Well, like that's what's, what I find so interesting about both the CAP comments and, and sort of this idea of better regulatory systems is that it sort of obf- obfuscates, if I can try to use that word correctly, uh, the actual conversation. Uh, CAP wants this pipeline built. The people criticizing don't. Uh, what we're really debating is whether or not – like these – ultimately these five pr- pr- principles will be based – people will decide if they like them or not if they get their way. Hmm. That's it. There's, there's no set of five principles you could have laid out that if they then built Energy East, people would be happy with them. It doesn't matter how robust these five principles are. We, as, like, we cannot afford to have Energy East built, and so we would not be happy with anything built that allowed it to get built. Like, even if it – like perhaps you could sell it if you got like, a you know, Canada-wide actually useful carbon – price on carbon. Maybe. But like, to have both sides talking about this as if it's like, yeah, these are good. This could be provide useful re- regula- regulatory services or get the public on side. That doesn't matter. Uh, in, in that, like, it, like, it, like, it, it, it's, it's again. This is something that comes from, coming from someone who will consistently argue that progress is progress and that is good. Uh, and so this is like, I, I, I can also flip the coin on that. But like, there, at some extent, there's still the conversation of. Would biz- is, is there anything that we could have done that would make business happy if energies didn't get passed or anything that would make us happy uh, if it does? So let's come back to the science principle then because I think this is important, right? right. When, you're, it, when you're weighing competing interests as, as you've characterized it, this mm-hmm. is a departure in that it's saying that the Ministry of the Environment is actually going to be doing the assessment. So the implication is that ideally that assessment is scientific-based. It is rooted in the emission consequences, and that's one of the the other principles, which is direct and upstream greenhouse gas emissions linked to projects under review will be assessed by this ministry. They will not be assessed by the National Energy Board. Is there potential for that to be a, a balancing and objective factor in this review process. We didn't see any opportunity under the, pro- on the, under the previous regime. Is there cause for optimism or not? Uh, yes, obviously. I'd say anything is cause for optimism at this point. Uh, but again, what's our conversation, upstream or downstream? To some extent, like you can have, you can extract the oil with zero emissions. You can extract infinite oil with zero emissions, uh, and, and that would have no upstream greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, as soon as we burn that, we're all frying. Uh, so, like, it's I, I, I understand and I fully understand the point. Like, it, yes, science based is better than not science based. But ultimately, the question is, what science? And Catherine McKenna is quite clear that this does not, at this time, include downstream emissions. When asked about that, yeah, and they 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 made that clear by highlighting that it did cover upstream emissions, which was <laughs> that's the politics one hundred and one, folks. In case you missed that. Uh, sorry, continue. Go ahead. Yeah, so that was that was principle two. Principle three, um, the views of the public and affected communities will be sought and considered. Now, this is interesting because what do we mean by affected communities? Last time I checked, greenhouse gas emissions affected all of us. So how do we, Brenna, unpack that principle? How wide do you think it should go? That's a tough question because um, 
you know, there's a lot of um, young people advocating for climate action right now because of um, future generations being affected. So, of course, um, that's significant. But to me, I think of the most directly affected people by pipeline projects and by um, emissions that come from living close to those sources. And I think it's almost it's it's a snub on both sides because it's not. I mean, it does single out indigenous communities and frontline communities as being, I believe, later in in the regulations. But um, I think it's it's intentionally vague um, to kind of escape any kind of like criticism of not listing a certain community. I guess principles by their nature can sometimes be vague, Mm -hmm. but it seems when questioned that a lot of the process, how it's been conceived, is not really clearly defined at this at this point. Now. Maybe one can argue in fairness to this new government, they have just stepped in and at least they've recognized that the previous process was highly flawed. Do they deserve some credit for that or or no? What I was going to mention is that um, it is really hard to tell because, for instance, um, in the National Observer, it said that uh, the government is delivering on its election campaign promises and commitments to improve consultations with Indigenous people. So is this the full delivery of that promise or are they just interim? But And also just coming back, back from COP, seeing like the continuity or sorry, the uh, how vague the Harper government was in answering questions and how vague the Trudeau government um, was in answering questions at COP. Like certainly there was more uh, consultation and more collaboration, but there was still a lot of vagueness in answering questions. And I think that the Trudeau government just doesn't quite know yet. <laughs> mm. uh, okay. So I, I just thought of something I wanted to just jump on then is I don't, I don't know if you guys know this story. Uh, maybe actually Stefan, if anyone knows this, I bet it's you. Do you mm. know the story of the stone soup? So stone soup. Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, this, really, really quickly. This is this is very applicable. Okay, so there's just the super brief version. You can put, look this up on the internet or whatever. But uh, it's the idea of this guy that comes to town. He doesn't have any money, uh, but he tells the locals that he has a magic stone, and he's like, "So all I have to do is boil this rock, and it will make a really del- the most delicious soup you've ever had." He's like, "But he's like, you know what? Make it even better. Does anyone have like just like a single carrot? It's <laughs> it's fine on its own. Does anyone have like one carrot? Anyway, because we're on the radio and I got to speed through this, you know where this is going, right? So slowly he's like, "Oh, it just it, it's good already. It'll be great. But if it's even better, and basically." what he does he just scams the entire village into putting all their food into this pot and then oh wow that was good soup that magic stone really worked uh and i kind of think that's sort of what's going on a little bit right follow like well and to be fair that's not a bad strategy like to be totally fair to the Trudeau government uh you come in after 10 years of no regulation you have to build up a regulatory process as quickly as possible you have people as hard on you as possible because of how far behind we actually are and you have to sort of match you you have to match a tenacity while also being while also staying in charge and like as Trudeau it would be foolish of him to start making sort of exact direct statements because they don't know they haven't been in government for ten years you know there have been governments that come in and find out that the last government actually left them a, a billion dollar deficit not a not a surplus uh, it takes a while to actually understand what's going on to some extent and. You know, and as far as – if there wasn't the level of urgency there is on climate change, you could very much be like, okay, great. You know, if this – sort of the mantra I've had for a while is like, if this was 20 years ago, we are doing really well. Yeah. It's not 20 years ago. And so now we're sort of like, okay, we're like – he's saying all the right things. But again, we can't have energy you know, like, like as, as, as for, uh, for climate reasons and not for sort of just we're spiteful reasons. Yeah. And the, my, my last thing on this, and I'm sorry, and then I'll let you guys finish, uh, was just the, the idea that like, yeah, it's, it's, 
I, I understand, and I, I want to sort of reach out to people that are that are seeing it this way because I, I understand why uh, a lot of people are going to look at this and say, you know, especially a lot of business folks, and business folks love to sort of promote their their acumen as uh, I mean, look at uh, what's his face O'Leary or whatever, mm-hmm. being like, I'm it's this thing, right? That I'm a businessman, therefore I would be the best manager for this for the you know for the country or whatever, be a great politician. It's nonsense, but it, people think that that's true. But part of the idea is that. You know, the, the part of the thing in business and part of the thing when you're doing like negotiating, for instance, so in any almost any other context uh, or anything where it's like it's less objective. The idea is that, you know, there's all these truisms about deals where, you know, the only fair deal is one where nobody's happy. And, they, you know, we could go on with all sorts of sayings people say about that. But that's only true when there's not an objective fact involved. The objective fact is we have a limit and any deal before that limit is the same like – there's no, there's no like, okay, we'll just have a little bit of climate change so that you guys can have more money. No, like that's not how that works. It's a, it's a, there is a hard limit and we can't go past it. And, and if we're agreeing to that, then all of your solutions are non-options. You know, it'd be like two people trying to come to an agreement and not like both kind of being unhappy because they both sort of like got part of what they want, but not all. It would be like, you know, coming to a fair agreement where like, okay, we can't agree on how to live together. So let's just all agree to like commit suicide. <laughs> like that's not, that's not an option. Right. And, and, and we just have to put things in that context of like what are what are possible outcomes? There are a variety of them and there are a variety of ways how to get there. But what some people are proposing is just not viable. And we have to say that this isn't an opinion. This isn't about environmentalists getting our way. It's about factual reality and science. And that's it. Well, and I just jump into that before we throw it in part four is what the problem with these principles are to some extent. Uh, if you can't only take upstream action and then also say it's based on science, you're ignoring a a vast percentage of CO2 emissions and then saying it's based on science. I, you have to choose one of those two. Uh, but number four, please, Emma. All right. Indigenous peoples will be meaningfully consulted and where appropriate impacts on their rights and interests will be accommodated. So I think this does merit a, a significant unpacking this statement. You'll uh, recall that principle two did acknowledge the traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples. So this is a qualified statement. It says where appropriate. And also the language of accommodation That's is what I was like such an affront <laughs> and and characteristic of a statement that, you know, the Harper government would have made Stefan Giona. Well, just, just the, the word accommodated. It's, yeah. it, it, what does that mean? Does accommodate mean we're going to take your land and give you some other land? Is that accommodation? We'll placate you. Here you go. We recognize that you should be accommodated in this in this instance, but not in others. Well, like accommodated could literally mean a cultural genocide. Like if accommodate means we'll give you downtown con- like condos in downtown Toronto and kick you off your 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 historical land, and you, you, you like if the government gets to define accommodated. What, then it's not yeah. accommodation. Accommodated well, and, is subjective in this case, yeah. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but it's almost like shut up and take our money. We're building our damn pipeline, right? Well, you don't get to decide on where we build our pipeline because we're paying you, so shut up. Well, that that has been some of the conversation, actually, that's been aired this week amongst political pundits. And one of the arguments is, well, why are you bringing Indigenous people into this conversation when you know that they're just going to come out against pipelines every single time? So... If the exercise is to get them on board, um, is this going to add anything meaningful, adding this provision? And what I found kind of despicable, but also something interesting to discuss, is a lot of the questions in media I found was, well, how is this process going to get people on board? That is coming from the starting point of assuming that that's where the direction needs to go, that it is the job of this Trudeau government to create a process where people will feel meaningfully consulted, including Indigenous people. Peoples with the view of getting them to lay off 
opposing pipelines. And so I think a tremendous amount of pressure is actually being put on this government because we're not looking at a balanced perspective. We're looking at we're not looking at people saying that this should be a process that could go either way in its outcome, like you've spoken about earlier, Darren. We're we're looking at a lot of people, including mainstream journalists, saying that the the most desirable outcome of a consultation process is for everyone to say yes. Well, yeah, and that's the that's the concern of whatever they mentioned, regulatory, like, like the idea that it's regulation and not actually consultation. Regulation has nothing to do with, regulation presumes it's being built. Uh, and you know, it's, it goes back to sort of the idea of, of, uh, of importance or useful uh, consultation. It's, it's not useful if, if, if the outcome's already decided. Uh, and then the fifth one we've already actually covered, which was, was mentioned again, uh, is the direct and upstream uh, greenhouse gas emissions linked to the project under their view will be assessed. But again, still in the upstream, but we sort of talked about earlier. Yeah, I think I think we we pretty already um, well at least <laughs> Stefan and I talked in nauseum about that. Did you guys have anything you wanted to add on on point five? No, I think you guys got it covered. Yeah, sorry about that. I I didn't. I, I'm pretty sure I'm on the record now on radio uh, and recorded saying I wasn't going to talk much, but there we go. <laughs> Liar again. So I'm your host Darren Kaster. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Also on our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country. Now also uh, produced uh, or sorry uh, uh, promoted as well via the uh, Rabble.ca uh, network as well, and our very appreciated podcasters, which are now starting to get a bonus show. And I think I'm going to be able to do. We we had a little bit of audio recording trouble last week, Stefan, but I'm pretty sure I know how to fix it. So this week should be much better. Stay tuned for that as well. But without further ado, we're going to go to our wonderful and frequently very quiet Edward, yeah. technician yeah. in the other room, who's the uh, the master of the show, but the very unsung hero. Yeah. Do you do you want to say a few I, words? I secretly pull all the strings. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I I send you guys tweets. I'm like, yo, make a point on this topic. Yeah. You know, <laughs> comment here. Little known uh, fact: Edward's uh, nickname is actually the Puppet Master. Yeah. So. Yeah. That was that was partly from my uh, Metallica band. <laughs> um, anyways, so uh, the song we're playing today is uh, "Your Daddy Don't Know" uh, by Toronto. All right, we are back. You're listening to Green Majority Radio here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners off rabble.ca or directly off the podcast, which if you're doing it that way, that is the best way. <laughs> the best way. Because you, uh, you get to hear... Um, Stefan singing at the end? Is that what we're doing today? We're doing something. It's That'd always a mean. I, I don't think it should be mean to them if I, if I made them listen to my singing voice. Right. Okay. So if you don't listen to the podcast, Stefan will sing. Next week. There you go. Suck it. Uh, however you're listening, we appreciate you. And we're going to get right back down to, uh, to actual content because I can be selling <laughs> on my own time. Uh, so, all right. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because we, we sort of did, did a bit of a dissection of something uh, last week. And uh, I don't know. Unless you guys really enjoyed that, you know, email us or tweet us and let us know that you really enjoyed that and we'll keep doing it. But as, I'm sort of assuming that, that, that we don't want to sort of dominate the whole show with me sort of providing counter arguments because you can easily go watch debates on YouTube if that's what you like. Um, so really quickly, so uh, we're not going to play the audio from the thing because I don't really know how the permissions work and I don't think it's worth the risk. But really, Rick Mercer, so basically the story was Rick Mercer does, you know, Rick Mercer report, very funny, generally uh, fairly progressive, if not very progressive in his points. Um, kind of surprised a lot of people, I think, um, a few days ago uh, by releasing a rant uh, essentially uh, against the, the um, uh, 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 sorry, mayor of Quebec. I'm getting the, the mayor, mayor of Montreal. 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 <laughs> Quebec is not That's a country. Sending, I'm, in my confusion, I'm talking nonsense. All right, so if anyone's looking for a quote to uh, to make us uh, look, look silly, silly. That, yeah. that was the one. Mayor right of Quebec. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, so the mayor of Montreal 
for uh, sort of you know uh, making some arguments against Energy East and saying that they saying that they didn't want to go through. It, we're going to get into some of those details in a little minute, uh, and MA has uh, some some sort of more specific, just sort of about the issue in general about Energy East and about that specific sort of uh, piece in a minute. But I wanted to just fire through. Uh, so I thought about this for about ten minutes, maybe tops. <laughs> And came up with seven reasons why um, I think that Rick Mercer completely got this wrong. So first of all, essentially, um, we'll, we'll post a link to the video again. I just didn't want to play the audio uh, directly on the air because I wasn't sure about how the rules worked for that. But uh, basically, he had one argument. Mm -hmm. And his one argument was just what we sort of teased a minute ago, which was, uh, hey, Montreal, this is going to make lots of money. Uh, you get some of that money. So shut up and do what you're told. And... Do you want to take money away from you're, – you're punishing others. You're taking money away from others by, by not saying yes. It was a nationalistic argument basically. Yeah. Well, it was a nationalistic argument and, and I find and – and I'm, I am actively not in agreement with any sort of conspiracy thinking on this. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that he's been influenced. I don't think anyone made him say it. I don't think anyone – he's being paid to say it. Any of that. I actively don't agree with any of that. But it was, I think, admittedly very out of character for him to be so monochromatic in his argument. Because uh, he basically just said the same thing for three minutes, which was, you're getting money. What are you, an idiot? And how dare you take money away from the rest of us? So really, really fast. And I'll pause in case mm -hmm. Stefan wants to throw something in here. Seven reasons. Just, I, And I'm just going to just spitball it. So if anyone wants to come back at me on, on any of these, you know, to tweet us, send us, make a phone call. You can call our, our phone line. Uh, happy to talk about it more. But just really quickly here. So the first thing is that the payments are based on the price of oil. It's based on profit, mm -hmm. right? So it's the amount of money we have to share and then that's balanced around. Oil price just crashed. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that there would be no benefit. Fine. But you're, you're, the, the thing you're like, look at all the money. That was based on a price that we don't have. So that's just, it, immediately his only argument is now very suspect. But I have six more. Uh, the climate also has a time limit, which doesn't care about economics, which is something uh, we're going to get in, we get into frequently, and I can get into more if, if it's necessary. But like you know, Stefan said this earlier, M.A. Brenna, everybody said it already. It is also true. It's not true because we said it. it is It is true, and that's why we said it. But the climate doesn't care about our economics. It just doesn't. So if we're actually serious and we're saying that we believe uh, the climate change is real, then how much money we might or might not make cannot be the deciding factor or you're saying that climate change is not real or not important or you don't take it seriously those are that you have one of those two opinions they're mutually exclusive it's a true dichotomy uh my other thing was apparently rick didn't get the memo and a lot of people haven't so this is a reminder message to canadians that renewables uh, has been found in many cases both in uh model-based systems and through assessments of other company uh countries investments generally speaking to be better for both the gdp and, and jobs so there goes the entirety of the rest of the argument now this might be region specific and different technologies to better and different yes 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 the details are important but basically speaking this whole faith-based position and that's what it is a faith-based position that oil is money and money is oil and this is a balanced equation it may be true but it doesn't mean it's the only thing that equals money <laughs> and it doesn't mean that it's the best and that's where the faith thing comes in money is the best way to run our economy no it just has been the way we've been running our economy it is not the best both logically speaking and also demonstrably speaking in the canadian context number four if oil ever spills there goes the profit to quebec because as we know in most cases in history most of the time, in most cases, most of the money for the cleanup is limited to the company responsible, and the public ends up paying for the majority of it. So none of that money has been factored in whatsoever. And I would like to say, and I'm making a bit of a claim here, fairly, uh, but I would like to say that not if, but when the pipeline spills. If we look at the, the safety histories of any of these companies, they can go on and on and about it, but world's safest pipeline, all they want, the fact is, they spill. 
and they can't guarantee they won't. And the cost of it does is giantly high. So this is called a risk assessment. The risk assessment on pipelines is terrifying. Now, if someone's going to say trains are worse, yes, 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 yes. But that's an ar- what, I'm, what we're arguing against is oil, not pipelines. Pipelines is simply one of the things that we're arguing against, but we're not saying we want trains or anything silly like that. Number five, and this is a cheap shot, I'll admit, but I'm going to make it anyway. I thought conservatives hated welfare. <laughs> Brad Wall, EQ payments wouldn't be needed if we had a more balanced economy, which we could be moved to from resource to manufacturing. By the way, one of the articles we read also pointed out that approximately 30 jobs are lost in manufacturing for every one that's gained in oil. Just saying. <laughs> doesn't seem very conservative of Brad Wall to be in favor of welfare. Now, I am a very big advocate of a strong social safety net. But what's better than having a strong social safety net is not needing one. Number six, Iran has just been uh, had a whole bunch of sanctions dropped and OPEC in correlation with them will continue to keep oil prices low for quite some time. In addition to that, they are also Iran, Iraq, Egypt, all these countries, all these Middle Eastern oil-rich countries are all massively building renewable energy. Why? Because they apparently know more, see the writing on the wall better than we do. And they're using their oil wealth to build renewable because they see what's coming better, apparently better than, than some of our premiers can. And last but not least, number seven. The world economy is starting to restructure. And even if Iraq and Saudi Arabia are uh, building massive RE, pipeline costs are costed against total lifetime usage. I'm not going to get into a big technical discussion on this, partially because I'm not prepared for it and partially because I think it would bore people. But basically, when you're doing like a business plan, you cost things and there's things like infrastructure and the value is there's there's like over amount of time and there's uh, amortization. Amortiza- amortization. Thank you. I always screw that word up. It's like synonym and cinnamon. I almost <laughs> sometimes I can't do that dis- distinction. So anyway, all these costs, I won't get into deals, but basically it only, the, the value of the pipeline is is done over the life of the pipeline. So unless the government is lying about their climate goals, we will not use this pipeline for any for nearly half of its life at best, which means that any economic value is significantly lower than what's being expected. That's it. That's my seven. You got anything to add? Uh, well, I'm, I'll leave I'll leave the uh, the uh, transfer payments to, to MA and just throw that uh, to sort of tease a conversation I want to sort of continue having on the show, which is. That I think this video of Rick Mercer is the is the new form and most dangerous form of climate denial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this is the it, there's a Ken Fenn wrote a great piece that people should read that I'll be post under the show uh, about sort of the shifting face of what we're talking about in the show. Uh, great uh, way it, to ruin it, Stephen. Oh, there you go. Uh, but th- this idea of the shifting face of, of how environmentalism has to deal with 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 climate change uh, because denial no longer looks like like a snowball on the Senate floor, denial looks like Rick Mercer saying that Energy East is needed so to keep to, to as a, to keep Canada strong, uh, and it's a much it's a very different tact and a much harder tact to sort of deal with because really throwing a snowball on the Senate floor you look like an idiot and we don't have to fight that. This is insidious and much harder to deal with. Yeah. It actually uh, reminds me of you know all of the dialogue around Johnny McDonald's. Uh, train uh, the railroad across Canada as being like a nation building project that was like incredibly violent um, for for marginalized people um, and racialized people. So it's the same thing is happening with with our pipelines in Canada. Yeah, I feel like this is ugly, ugly politics at its worst. And, you know, I think it, it really is important 
to debunk to a certain extent the rhetoric that's being thrown around around these equalization payments. I am not an expert on equalization payments, but one thing I do know, it doesn't work like this. Alberta makes a whole bunch of money. We take the surplus of that money and then we give it to Quebec. That's not how equalization payments work. Equalization payments are pooled revenue um, from tax dollars across the country that are then made in transfer form. However, you've got to look at how these ideas, these frameworks are constructed. One could argue that the billions upon billions of dollars that has been pumped into the tar sands industry in federal subsidies are in fact a form of equalization payment. Now, I think that if we were going to invest in a province, I would not want to see all that, all those tax t- taxpayers' dollars going into private hands, which they have. But are we going to ask for that money back from Alberta? No, that's ridiculous. So we have to look, when we look at how our, our federal tax dollars are being used, we have to look a lot broader and say, well, this industry, which was invested in by the federal government with the view that it would provide jobs and good livelihood security for the people of Alberta uh, was a was a grand mistake. And the people of Quebec are not asking for that money back. So this feels like very, very petty regional politics to me. And you know, I think it's really, really interesting how convenient it is that Quebec has become a bit of a scapegoat. Uh, you'll recall that the province of BC did put in some negative submissions against the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Now, we haven't seen that kind of negative rhetoric being flung at the uh, British Columbia government. There's a tendency, I think, to really exploit this sort of uh, Alberta versus Quebec divide in this case, or the West versus the East divide. And I think it's a bunch of nonsense, and it's not based in actual real evidence. So yeah, like people in Alberta have given feedback through consultation and said many of them have said no to pipelines. The same thing happened with the Energy East Review in Quebec, where extensive reviews were were uh, underwent uh, over the last over weeks and weeks and weeks and people said no and it's interesting um just emma some of what you were saying about equalization payments gabriel nado dubois wrote this article i think darren you referred to it um and he said i sometimes forget the degree to which a large part of english canada despises quebec this week that reminder was brutal and it just harks back to um to so many things in Canadian history, like one of which is the um, national energy strategy uh, under um, Trudeau Sr., which then gave rise to Western alien- alienation, which gave rise to Stephen Harper. Um, so I think it's it's really significant that people like Rick Mercer are saying uh, we need to be pro-pipeline in order to like avoid this kind of division. Yeah. And I th- like two, two sort of other specific things on that. One of them is that, um, I mean, this, this is a story that if you went back in, in, you know, if there was a way to sort of to do a copy and search Google for like concepts as opposed to actual keywords, then what you would find is if you took this situation, you would find this throughout history where a power structure is challenged, which is the dominant political sort of party and class so the the conservatives over eight years and they're associated where they get a lot of their power from, which is, an extremely powerful and especially especially in Canada influential uh, business community is threatened and taken down a few notches and they start lashing out and trying to protect themselves and and the public who gets this sort of business politics mixed with or business and, and economics and a poor understanding of what, how the actual details sort out mixed in with their politics um, gets encouraged in some ways actively and in some ways passively um, to turn on each other. And we've seen, I think, very recently, you know, with Donald Trump, where people are like, wow, look at this racist, sexist, just absolutely vile human being buffoon. What? He has 38 support among Americans? What? 
And I think that's this thing. I think I think we're experiencing that a little bit too, where where you know I've been quite shocked by how easily it can be provoked in in anyone um, to to simply turn on each other. And and I and I don't want to sound cheesy here. I'm I'm the least interested in meaningless sort of you know go get them rah rah statements ever. That's totally not my style. But come on, people, we got to stick together on this one. Like seriously. Yeah, and it's I, I keep going back to how silly this would be if there was a different industry like the oil industry has such a privileged position in in canadian discourse because of the sort of you know because for all the different reasons that like i'm just picturing if it was a different industry that basically you know suddenly didn't have the revenue uh, or suddenly the price dropped so much that we couldn't afford it you know like like well look what happened to the car industry uh, to some extent uh in ontario uh suddenly there wasn't a market for as many cars and sell or for the manufacturing and there was never this conversation about hey alberta why aren't you buying more cars to support ontario you get money from us. Yeah. Like it's 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 a specific it's so specific I think to the oil industry to have this sort of feeling of inevitability. And I think that's the, really what it is. It's that is that we've been if there's one thing that environments have been fighting against for the last 20 years in pipe, these pipelines battles, it's this idea that oil is king and that all in oil infrastructure will eventually work, so just stop being annoying and get out of the way. All right. And thank you, Stephen. I think that's a really good place. We're going to take our, our second and final break here. When we come back, we have we have a little bit of a wrap up on this because uh, one of the things that, you know, we wanted to address as well was that people are saying, you know, the common argument was, you know, so what? You just want to abandon the people of Alberta or so what? So what's your alternative when, when you sort of say the types of things we've been saying? We have an answer for that. And also some international news roundup. We'll be back to that here on The Green Majority at CIUT, uh, a wonderful partner station's rabble and our own podcast uh, in just a minute after Edward. What are you going to listen to this time, buddy? Well, uh, this time uh, we're going to listen to It Could Happen to You by Blue Rodeo. All right, and we're back. We're in the final section here, the home stretch here on the Green Majority Radio Program and podcast, uh, CIUT Today Live, as well as our wonderful partners, Rabble, all our community radio partners across the country, our podcast audience, and uh, people who are just randomly fippling around the dial being like, what are these jokers talking about? <laughs> uh, so we're down here in the final section. I'm once again going to throw back to uh, one of my uh, co-hosts here, Emma, who has uh, prepared a couple thoughts on the final bit. I'm, uh, we, and we maybe have time for a quick point form list from me, but, but Emma, the floor is yours. All right. So one thing that we wanted to discuss is given this firestorm of discussion in Canada around the the future of the oil and gas industry and its impact on Canadian jobs. What I want to put out for discussion is, you know, are we really seeing an industry that's in its death throes, so to speak? And, you know, a lot of people who've worked on environmental and climate issues is that this is our big moment to actually transition to the kind of economy that's not so entirely extractive base that, you know, invests in renewable energy, etc. Um, but the question is, is this really the moment? Or are we at a real risk of this being blocked? Because we've seen a lot of negative commentary around the lack of support of the new government for a resource based economy. And of course, last week, we talked about Justin Trudeau's comments at Davos about Canadians being known not for our resources, but our resourcefulness. And that sparked a huge debate and criticism. So I'm just going to put it out there and say, is this really the moment where the industry is uh, going down or is it waging a significant battle that we need to be aware of? Uh, I would I would just say that I think we're looking at it's not it's, it's ultimately not up to us as much as uh, as much as I think we can can force it in the direction we want to go. Uh, it's up to OPEC. If, if prices stay at $20, $30 dollars by an hour and 
$30 a bottle for a barrel. Bleh. Sorry, guys. Um, what else What else can we do to some extent? It's, it's, Canada's economy, at least, will be controlled by the price of oil. Uh, if it stays below a price that you cannot make the, car, the tar sands valuable, we have our hands will be forced regardless of what we do. You cannot build enough pipelines to make tar sands oil profitable at twenty to thirty dollars a barrel. You can't. Uh, uh, worldwide, a whole different question. So that's the economic reality. But I think I would argue, Stefan, that transition just isn't about the current economic reality and the market price of oil. It's about whether a society is ready to make those kind of investments and those moves towards different kind of solution solutions than we've had in the past. And I guess what I'm driving at is, you know, we've talked about this concept of social license around the Energy East pipeline and how it couldn't go forward because that social license has, hasn't been secured. But let's unpack that concept. Is there a social license in Canada to move away from a resource-based economy? Uh, I don't think there is yet. And when, when, if we're talking about Canada, we're talking about sort of the, the aggregate population. I think across the aggregate population, there still is a sort of very subtle, subconscious almost association. And I think understandably, because based on our history, understandable subconscious association between carbon-based fuels and, and the meat and potatoes of our, of our livelihoods. Um, the error there is that it's the best way to do it and, and that it's the best way for right now, or that it's the best way generally. And the, and the error is, is it anymore, even if it once was so that like, there's a, there's reasons why that argument is wrong, but there is a very strong reason why that's not how people think about it. And I, I think I, and I think at least at this point, unless we approach this segment of the quote unquote campaign to transition to a new economy that respects, you know, survival of life on this planet, um, we have to sort of see this as a hearts and minds battle now as opposed to a political fight. And I think they're fought in different ways. And I think we have to understand that that difference to be able to to sort of proceed from this point. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, just in Cam Fenton's article that we've referenced, he, he talks about a Guardian headline from December. The Paris Agreement signals that deniers have lost the climate wars. But I think there's there's a gap between like, OK, I don't deny that climate change is real and that it's human caused and actually supporting projects that move us away from a fossil free economy. I just, Emma had said, you know, um, are we, are we winning? Is, is, are we, is, is this hopeful environment right now? And I just watched, um, the documentary, uh, fractured land. I don't know if you've seen it, but, um, yeah, it definitely, it's, it's easy to get kind of like caught up in the climate movement. And then you remember, um, that thousands of pages of like meaningless basically rubber stamp consultation are being sent to indigenous communities for liquid natural gas. So that's the other thing is is it's not I guess just like the big pipelines that we're talking about but there's so much infrastructure being created right now that's not going to be relevant in a matter of years. Well, and that's just to sort of try to answer the full on question of a resource extraction economy that is so much more than even just fossil fuels. You know, uh, Canada is a country of mines, of, of, of lumber, of all these other – I think those are even – you know, you can get – we could be a, a low-carbon extractive economy to some extent, uh, which is uh, – so that sh- sort of highlights the difference between sustainability and, and low-carbon. Uh, so maybe we might get off fossil fuels. I think it ends up becoming a conversation again of, of, of people – the real, real question is can you get people to have a low-consumptive lifestyle? That's to me the question. Well, I want to interject 
interjects the title of an article that's just been published by Bill McKibben, and it's called The Dawn of the Climate-Killing Mega Project. When one goes down, another rises. How do we keep our planet habitable? And I think this speaks to the threads of discussion that we've had today, that even though we're seeing a decline in the industry, these projects keep rising up. This also uh, pulls on a, a line in a line of thinking in Cam Fenton's article, which is that we can't just look at strategies that are about blocking one pipeline at a time. We're not going to win if we take that approach. We need to look at more systems-based approaches. This is me talking. I'm not mm-hmm. quoting Cam here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to take a more systems-based approach and a solutions-focused approach. And I think, Darren, you had a few thoughts on that. I do. And I, and I realize we're tight on time, so I'm going to skim through it. If anyone, Maybe we can come back to some of this stuff later, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to surprise you guys with at least one of these ideas. But here <laughs> I go. So the least surprising thing ever, renewable energy. But people are like, well, it's not ready. Well, to the extent that it is, we, are, we haven't implemented it nearly as much as it is ready. I think where there's probably a lot of giant general misunderstanding about how ready it is. Uh, and as I said, it's, it's, it is better for the economy. We, we know this and it's better for job creation. It's better for number stuff. Uh, and anyway, so that we could have a whole show on that and, and we have, uh, we, and we will again, but for now, let's leave that point. Here's another one that's interesting, and it's sort of not an economic driver, but it's something I think would be really useful, which is uh, material material standards uh, grouping together with some countries, kind of like the way we talked at COP, uh, but talking about sort of really basic. So people are like, oh, don't pick the winners, don't pick the winners. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is in the same way that we have uh, automotive standards for the cars, and every 10 or 15 years, the car companies go, no, you can't do that, this will kill our whatever, and then it happens, and then they adjust, and then life goes on, and they still make money. I think we could be doing that a much, on a much wider scale. And here's the partner with that is Canada needs to go about face on what the policy, the last 10 years was about crushing science. I think we need to be, we have a, we have a really good country. We have a lot of resources. We're incredibly, incredibly gifted and, and have so many advantages. It's like the, it's like the Canada privilege, you know, the extension of white privilege where we have no idea just how lucky we are with how much stuff. If we were actually dumping that into science and research and like, that's where the real money is, is like patents and developing new technologies, like not just burning old stuff in the ground. Like we, we can do this. We can capitalize on a knowledge economy and we can work internationally to increase the value of those things by working with other countries to make it so that the types of things we're developing are actually required. Everybody wins. We actually really win if we're the people producing this stuff. It's an option. Uh, massive grow your own food program, because here's something that almost never gets talked about. Another way to make Canada richer. So costing sheets are two sides. There's money in and money out. And we only ever talk about money in. Nobody ever wants to talk about money out. If we reduced the amount of costs that the general Canadians have to pay to live, that's identical to giving them more money. Giant food growing program. Canada wide, federally supported. It pays for itself and everybody gets richer. I'll come back to that if necessary. If anybody wants to challenge me on that one, I would be happy to go on with them about that one. Now, here's the one that's probably going to surprise you. Uh, Trudeau has talked about legalizing pot. Another fun fact about pot, and I've actually been meaning to do this feature, but I just, I've never found the right person because hmm. I really didn't want to get into the sort of the like, uh, recreational use or even the medicinal angle of this. Hemp itself as a material is one of the most useful products on the face of the freaking planet. So when we're you know, busy, well, medical use, okay, fine. Completely side discussion. Paper, textiles, building materials, so much stuff can be made out of hemp and it's incredibly environmentally friendly relative to other stuff. Yes, that's a, it gets into more complicated, but just generally... Ex- uh, and one of the reasons why people are like, well, when I go to the store and I, maybe I bought a hemp shirt from a, some local head shop, the reason it's expensive is because it's their tiny operations. If we do this on a massive scale, like the scale that we're doing wheat, there is enough demand for those materials that that could be our new economy. 
on its own. <laughs> I think we should pair it with all this stuff. We're going to be just fine. I got one more for you. Uh, full cost of uh, counting, uh, full cost accounting of cars is much higher than uh, gas and insurance. There's road maintenance and blah blah blah. Like think about how often we do construction. So if we had a one of the things that's not talked about, if we're like really talking about a massive transit plan, Canada wide massive ca- transit plan, it actually in many ways could very easily pay for itself in the reduction of cost. When you actually do that full cost accounting, and especially when you get the economy of scale of doing it on a big scale. And here's the last thing. And and I don't have a driver's license, so yes, I made this for me. Anyone who doesn't have a driver's license should be getting a giant incentive. <laughs> there you go. Done. Um, uh, just I, I, like I'm just going to jump in uh, to uh, the conversation. I think that that you, actually one of yours referenced, and I think this is actually a funny way to frame it. Is Trudeau's statement resources versus resourcefulness? Because ultimately, that's the question. That's the thing where society, if society is going to fight back, society isn't going to fight back about where we get the money. I think you know if you could you, you could provide if everyone drives a Tesla and and everyone gets exactly what they're getting right now all the same sort of stuff but just slightly better or in 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 a non-resourced extractive economy that's not the pushback the pushback is going to be where we tell people that no you don't get to buy everything all the time that's the part of society we're going to get the fight back uh, and as I'm going to tease this and not get into it but what what the owner of IKEA says uh, is is fascinating. The owner of Ikea has decided that we've reached peak stuff. Uh, and so Ikea is shifting its business model uh, because he honestly thinks that we've reached peak stuff. Uh, and, and if for all our sakes, I hope he's right. All right. So we've, we've only got about five minutes left. And I, and I know there was, there was one thing I wanted to get to, get to but I can, I can actually sum it up in a single line, which is that I'm going to post a video. So there was a really en- excellent coverage on the uh, Flint water crisis. If you don't know anything about it, please go to the website and just watch the Young Turks like they did a very comprehensive. It's extremely corruption-based. And it's extremely despicable and is some of the worst sort of racism slash classism. The most obvious example of rich people just being, screw you, we're going to take money and I don't care if your kids get cancer. It's that bad you've ever seen. So we don't have time for it on today's show. We might come back to it another week. I wanted to at least acknowledge it, first of all, because it's it's devastating. And second of all, because we do have a, a part of our audience that's that's American. I just want to be like, hey, we didn't forget about you guys. We, we saw that. Don't have time for it today. Please go to the website today. It will be with the show post. Watch the video that uh, the Young Turks did. It is excellent and very fact-based. Uh, and if we can, we'll come back to it another time. But that's all. I'll, I'll leave that there for this week. Yeah, and uh, we do want to acknowledge that we have some great American listeners on the other mm-hmm. side of the border. And there was actually a really good news story uh, that came out of the U.S. And it was about the Supreme Court upholding a decision. Um, and I'm just going to read this. Under the rule, grid operators are required to pay demand response participants the same rates for reducing energy use as those paid to power suppliers for producing energies from Coal res- resources like coal, natural gas, wind, and solar power. So I think that kind of talks to what uh, Stefan had mentioned around rewarding positive consumption behaviors. This is a this is actually a landmark, I think, mm-hmm. affirmation that's coming out of the U.S. So we need to acknowledge these positive stories as well. That's fascinating. Just the the the, the second that we start act- acting like not using is as good, like not using is as good as producing more, is is a step in the right direction. Uh, and you're, you, I think that's where, again, T, Emma and I have been going back about this plan to win conversation that eventually we will have, we promise. Uh, 
Well, we'll do it as soon as we get to do. I can do an entire. I want to do an entire show, and I could do an entire show alone. I won't dominate it, but I could do an entire show alone on other things we could be doing. <laughs> it's believe. I am. I get like five ideas a day. Not all of them are good, but I could get it down to like. I could get it down to like twenty over the last like eight years of things we could be better doing our t- with our time. I want to hear twenty more ridiculous ideas. That'll be a se- second show. Okay, great. Um, but yeah, like it's just this. It's it, there's just this piece that I think we sort of thrown through this entire show uh, of this conversation about, you know, when we're talking about energy east, what's the actual conversation we're having? Uh, it's and or when we're talking about sort of this the internal fighting of the future of Canada. It's the the ultimate battle that's being waged here isn't about energy east, isn't Quebec versus uh, you know versus versus the West, isn't about the West versus Ontario or or, or or Ottawa or anything like that. The entire battle we're waging here is: Do I get to have all the stuff when I want it, or don't I? Uh, and or and alternatively, like, what does that stuff look like? And I think until and and, and that's in, in Cam Fenton's article as well as Bill McKibben's, there's a, sort of this this hint at okay, climate change people, we've now we've we've won the denial argument basically. You know, every single you know there's still denialists and and what of course and there's a different type of denial that we're now facing. Um, but uh, but what uh, what are we doing? And like it, basically we basically we spent the last twenty years yelling, "Hey, everyone, listen to us!" And now we finally got the room quieted down enough; they actually could hear us speak. And now we're standing there silent. And the question is, what do we say now? I will never be silent, Stefan. You know that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Green Majority Radio Program. Unless, of course, you are listening on our podcast. And then we'll be back in just a couple minutes. We have uh, uh, Sabina, one of our new volunteers as well, who's going to be joining us for the uh, brief after show. We'll get a, Maybe we'll get a little bit more into some of these uh, these ideas. Maybe we'll complain a bit more about Rick Mercer. Who knows? You'll have to, you'll have to find the podcast to find out uh, as well. And uh, we have uh, a number of really interesting guests coming in. We actually found a bunch of people who are going to be coming in and doing some... We're experimenting with a new format. We're going to have some people uh, coming in and doing some uh, some interesting kind of reports instead of our usual interview feature coming up soon. So lots of cool things. Check the website to learn more, greenmajority.ca. Other than that, have a good Green Week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you all real soon. All right, so it's time for the bonus show now. Just a quick reminder as well, if you're able, you're interested, and you're willing, please do think about supporting us on Patreon. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month. On the other hand, if you can't or you don't want to, but you enjoy the show, hey, that's great too. There's actually some some non-financial-based ways you can help us you can find on the website, or you can just listen to the show. That is also okay. Have a great day. All right, and welcome to the bonus show of the Green Majority. Uh, this is Stefan being the intro- being the guest host for this. I guess well, actually, Sabina really is our as our guest host. So, Sabina, you sort of sat in the uh, in the la- in the and I'll kind of call it the lounge, the tech lounge, because it sounds way fancier. Uh, and you had some sort of some sort of jumping off points for us. So I'll take it away. Well. What I was first wanting to say is that right now you were talking about the different type of denial that we're now facing. And I'd like to say that that is kind of a motivated blindness saying that uh, Alberta right now and especially all of these people that are pro the pipeline, they're blinded because they think that we completely need this this economy that we have right now. However, if we are to look at a completely circular economy where we don't consume and throw away, but we consume and recycle, then we could be getting around 80 to 120 billion dollars per year that is lost because we don't reuse. And this is specifically for plastic. And we just saw this this week. Uh, it came out that the World Economic Forum actually said that the world will have 
uh, more plastic than fish in the oceans by 2050. And that to me is extremely, I can't even imagine because what I imagined when I first heard that was instead of going to the sea to fish, you go in and you go and rack out all of this plastic. And that to me is like a mental shift that really I would never want to see. Well, there's a there's an organization called Plastic Bank that is actually doing something really interesting around this, uh, where they they actually do they hire they hire plastic fishermen, uh, and they go out and they and they wind up plastic and they bring it back to their their different ports and and then they they actually do they they melt it down and actually use it as recyclable materials. It's a it's this fascinating process of and then it, it, what's interesting is they're trying to connect it also with with three D printing and actually building sort of different things. Um, yeah, and so it's like this, inter- this fascinating sort of futuristic thing where people are going out into the seas to collect this completely inanimate re- this resource, a human human created resource, bringing it back and on uh, back back to them, and then creating a new building material out of it, and then using this sort of high tech way. To, it's like it's so sort of out of I can't decide if it's out of a uh, outside of, out of a dystopian future or out of the uh, novel or a or like a utopian future novel. Uh, I would I'm guessing somewhere in the middle, which is probably well, hopefully where we're going to end up. For me, what's really interesting is that actually some companies like Adidas right now is taking this plastic and making, um, so they're recycling this ocean garbage and they're making new shoes out of 3D printed material. That is really great. It's an innovation that we can use. However, I wish that our society would take this conscious shift not to consume as much and throw away, however, to start using materials and start learning about what these materials really mean and how they're going to start to affect our environment. And with this... um, kind of conscious shift, I wanted to go against your argument that you said that the oil industry is king and that is why people aren't taking as much of a challenge against it. And we were talking earlier about tobacco use and how in the 1950s, the industry, the tobacco industry was a huge market and it had completely skewed people's perception of how tobacco actually affected your body. And People like, for example, doctors were smoking inside hospitals. And now, for example, in 2015, a lot of people, we have a lot of warnings, even though, I mean, you have something to say about this. For, for mm-hmm. uh, well, as a, I will only, at least I will make it a pitch for uh, our friend of the show, Rob Shirky, uh, who is the head of Our Horizon. And their goal is to put warning labels on gas pump nozzles. Uh, and he's winning somehow. Uh, we've sort of been following him for four or five years. And the idea, I think, starts out saying so ridiculous uh, that you don't – you have no expectation of victory. Uh, but he's actually had a couple he's, – he's gaining momentum and by all means check out that 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 whole thing. Uh, but the, yeah, the real question is – I think tobacco is an interesting example. Uh, I'm going to throw it to M.A. Uh, or Brennan in a half second. But tobacco uh, as a as an example of, of at least diminishing a specific industry's power, not – getting rid of it, but diminishing and, and sort of changing how it's perceived. You know, if oil was even just perceived as, by, by society as this, you know, at best necessary addiction, um, th- how much does that change the society we're living in? I think we're one of the most frustrating elements of uh, the fight against, against fossil fuel industries and climate change is that we're not linking oil extraction with our physical health and the health of our communities as much as, you know, say, when tobacco, all of the revelations started to come out. And people clung very emotionally and very ideologically to tobacco use, just as they, and even more so, are clinging to the oil industry. And I think we're saying we want to perpetuate it and continue to develop our fossil fuels in the name of our economic health, but then we're just, we're straight up putting 
first of all, that's false. Mm-hmm. And second of all, we're straight up putting our quote unquote perceived economic health above our actual like lungs and the organs in our body. Emma, I think you maybe have some things to say on that. Yeah. I think this comes back to one of the challenges that people who advocate on behalf of climate change education come up against again and again, and that is the more amorphous nature of climate change and how to bring it into people's reality. It's easy to um, to sideline something that is quite abstract, but really when we look at what's happening, people are experiencing climate impacts on their health today. Um, as we've talked about on the show, many of those people do not reside in Canada. Um, some of them reside in in Im- impacted communities in sub-Saharan Africa, um, where you know malnutrition because of drought is rife, some of them do reside in Canada, um, and we need to really look more concretely at how we bring those examples to the forefront and how we capture those. Because you know the 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 First Nations saying about thinking seven generations ahead is not something that's been integrated into mainstream culture in our culture. So while we're still working on that, we need to we need to also so alongside that, bring the very real examples of what's happening today, whether it's about um, whether it's about uh, malnutrition, whether it's about respiratory health, or whether it's about contamination of natural resources. Yeah, uh, yeah, like I mean, that's like I, I think the holy grail I think of environmentalism is to successfully connect envi- uh, climate change and health. I think that's like the the thing that we've been trying to do for so so long. Uh, and we're, we're, we're almost done here, but if you have any thoughts, Sabina, do you want to wrap up? Again, we'll throw to you, and then we'll we'll end the show. I, I just wanted to say that one of the biggest uh, things that we really need to do is to see how we can communicate to different types of people or different types of stakeholders. For example, conservatives are more likely to want to care about something being impure. So if we tell them, okay, what you're doing is causing impurity in our rivers, they're more likely to take that to heart than to put an image of the earth and hands around it saying that let's protect the earth. That's something that more liberals are driven towards. So what I think is very important is how we communicate to different people and how we can tailor that communication style that fits specifically to them. And I think that through this education, we can really help and bring more sustainable environment. If I could just jump in for one final comment, it's interesting that you mentioned, Sabina, how to communicate to different stakeholders, because I think that is going to be incredibly relevant for the TPP. Um, And, you know, I know that that wasn't the topic of the show today, but for instance, the TPP, you know, we know based on studies that have come out that it's going to create net job losses in like a number of the signatories of the TPP. In addition to... um, shuffling jobs into countries that have like poor human rights records and lack of environmental regulation. So, but put that aside, communicating to quote unquote, like conservative stakeholders. The other thing is, um, you know, Rana Ambrose and conservatives are coming out saying that um, the TPP is the only thing that's going to diversify our economy. And then at the same time, they're saying pipelines, pipelines, pipelines. So do you want to diversify or do you want to like continue pushing pipelines as like the the backbone of our economy so it's really about who you're yeah how you're communicating to people 
All right, so uh, I'll just jump in here. Hey, it's Darren. Jumping in, I was uh, I was helping with, check with the levels today because we're on our own equipment for the after show, uh, and we're fi- thankfully I think it's going to work out much better this week. So hooray for learning technology! Uh, just a couple quick things. One, uh, as a quick aside, I know Stefan there was was getting very near the. Uh, I, I believe the thing you're reaching for there, Stefan, was uh, uh, in physics. There's something called the, the the Holy Grail of physics, which is the Grand Unified Theory. So I think that was the comparison you were making. Uh, and from that, I'm going to make another comparison, which was. <clears throat> A lot of the time, and I think part of the reason why people have a problem with this stuff is that um, stuff is very unintuitive sometimes. Physics is another great example of that. Quantum theory. There's things like spooky action at, dis- uh, spooky action at a distance and superposition. And the fact that if you go and look uh, on YouTube for Lawrence Krauss, there's a, one of the most mind-bending lectures you'll ever hear. It's an hour of your life. Um, you will be so happy you spent with it called uh, Something from Nothing, where he actually defines what nothing is in, a, in the sense of physics. Things are not always as they seem, and things are not always straightforward, and sometimes stuff is counterintuitive. Um, and so your gut feeling about how you feel about stuff, I'm sorry, isn't always right. It's free. It's, light rod of the, it's, it's right a lot of the time, but it's not always right. And here in a lot of the time, it's wrong. When people talk about climate and economics, this stuff is complicated, and it's often counterintuitive. <clears throat> Um, so my last thing was um, we need allies, and that was just my whole thing. The last few weeks has been my my um, my my soapbox was this whole nonsense about sort of separating ourselves by left and right. So here's an appeal to all those the libertarians out there, and I've been on the internet, so I know there's a lot of you. Energy independence, making your own power, not having to go through utility, not having to go through the government, can't be taxed, generating free power. What possible more right wing libertarian thing could there possibly be? If you, do, you don't have to agree with us on everything, but at least let's team up on that because I know that a giant portion of the planet agrees with that, especially in Canada and the U.S. and a lot of developed nations. These people that don't want – get your government hands off my Medicare. This is a real area where we can cooperate and let's get our stuff together. And so if the environmentalist listening or the quote-unquote lefties listening, let's do some reaching out to those folks. And if any of those folks are listening, we want to work with you on this. We don't have to agree on everything. Let's get this done and then we'll argue about the rest of it later. That's my final thought. Anyone have a final thing they want to throw in? I just wanted to say that if anybody is interested in producing like their own in- energy and, and all of that kind of stuff and also creating a zero marginal society or cost society, I would suggest that you read Jeremy Rifkin. He's an author that is kind of a visionary 30, 40 years in advance. He was talking about a zero marginal cost society and a circular economy in the 1970s and 80s. So I think that if anybody's really interested, Jeremy Rifkin. Yeah, and when they're done that one, there's like 50 more books. People have actually been doing a lot of, people like, well, what would you replace it with? We actually have ideas. Anyway, we'll get to that another week. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks for sticking through the bonus show. And uh, we'll see you all real soon. Thanks. (laughs) 